Uh, a man approached a Little League baseball game one afternoon, and he asked a boy in the dugout what the score was. The boy responded, 18 to nothing, we're behind. Boy, said the spectator, I'll bet you're discouraged. Why should I be discouraged, replied the little boy. We haven't even gotten up to bat yet. <laughs> Hope. It's a powerful thing, isn't it? Uh, one of the great benedictions in all the New Testament is in Romans 15, 13. Look at this marvelous statement. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Last week I talked about how we can keep on keeping on in hope. And the reason is because of our amazing salvation and, and our inheritance. So in light of that, even when we face trials and difficulties in our lives, uh, we can do that even with joy because we know they're temporary. We know that God will use them even to refine us. The Apostle Peter, in his first New Testament letter, speaks to Christians undergoing difficult times. And he encourages with the hope that they have in Christ because of the resurrection. And by this one historical event, believers in the risen Christ have the guaranteed certainty of their future, of their destiny. There is no longer guesswork on what happens after the grave. And so their destiny, Peter reminds them, was to shape their, their view and their experience in life today in the midst of whatever. Now what Peter does is he goes on in this letter then to build upon this truth by listing some general commands. When you read Peter in this letter in particular, you see that he differs from Paul just a little bit. What Paul tended to do in his writing was to lay out all the doctrinal truths, all the, all the facts, the, the, the doctrines that were there, and then he concludes with the practical, so what? Uh, Peter does it just a little bit differently. He, he, will, uh, he, he will go back and forth between these two, and so he'll lay some truth out there, and then he will move on to some practical uh, so what's, and then he goes back to truth again. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. If you turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, if you want to grab a Bible in front of you, page 1293. We pick up where we left off last week in verse 13 of 1 Peter, chapter 1. Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, a literal rendering and reading of the beginning of verse 13 is this, having girded the loins of your mind. Well, that sounds weird, doesn't it? This girding of the loins was an oriental expression. It was, it was referring to the gathering up of one's long, loose robes and tucking them into a belt that was around the waist. It, they were to do that so you would not impede uh, your progress, whether it was in battle or in sports or whatever. If Peter were writing today, maybe he would say something like, roll up your sleeves. 
In other words, get serious about living the Christian life and, and focus on hearing what God wants you to do and then do it. I mean, it's a little bit difficult to, uh, to identify with long robes getting in the way. I didn't see any when I came in today. Uh, and so but we can identify with rolling up our sleeves to getting on with the task. So don't let anything impede your progress spiritually. Peter's talking about girding our minds for action. This is a word picture, of course, that, that his readers would understand because of the robes and the belt. But girding their minds meant putting out of their minds anything that would hinder and cripple the action of, of, of their minds, of, of connecting to spiritual progress in their lives. And so having girded the loins of their minds, Peter goes on to say several things. First he says, keep sober in spirit. The word means to be calm, to be collected in spirit. Uh, it, it means to be temperate, dispassionate, circumspect. Um, I think it speaks of the state of mind in which a person is self-controlled. There, there's control over one's thoughts here. You're able to see without distortion that's caused by worry and, and fear and so on. In fact, it's so important to Peter, he's going to repeat that same thing twice more in this letter. And then he goes on to say, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We saw last week that hope is one of those things that differentiated Christians from non-Christians. Our hope is a settled reality, not a wish so or hope so in the sense we use it today. Um, in sports terms, God has already posted the guaranteed final score, though the game is still going on. And the result is that life beyond the grave and ultimate destiny is not a nail-biter for the Christian. Now we're enjoying the beginning of God's grace, but when Christ returns, Peter says, we will experience the fullness of his grace, of his redemptive purpose and his plan. And so John the Apostle writes in his first letter, chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So we have the guaranteed certainty that what God said is true. And it's going to be fulfilled. And he's able to bring all of these plans and promises that he's made for you and for me to completion in his time. Our salvation will be complete. All the promises fulfilled. See, I think you can, you can endure trials and effort and discipline if you know it's leading somewhere. Like an athlete that's in training or a mother in childbirth. Uh, William Barclay writes, the Christian can live with gratitude for all the mercies of the past, with resolution to meet the challenges of the present, and with the certain hope that in Christ the best is yet to come. So Peter says, having girded the loins of your mind, 
Be sober-minded. Uh, set your hope. And then he goes on and now to talk about something that we'll be talking about this week and next week and the following weeks, and that is be holy. Look, at, look in the text again, back to 1 Peter 1, starting at verse 14. Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter cautions these folks about being conformed to the passions of their lives, the way they lived it before Christ. And he uses the same word that the Apostle Paul does in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to the world. Kenneth Wiest, in his Greek word studies, says this of the word conform, that it refers to the act of assuming an outward appearance, patterned after some certain thing, an appearance or expression which does not come from and is not representative of one's inmost and true nature. In this case, he says it's the believer masquerading in the costume of the world is playing a part, playing a role that isn't really you. I can't resist telling a story that I've shared before because I think it illustrates Peter's point. There was a circus that was making its way across the Midwest. And in Oklahoma, at a certain point, the gorilla in the circus died. They didn't have time to get another gorilla and train it, and so they advertised in this one town for someone to play the part of a gorilla, and a young man signed up. They made a gorilla suit for him, and he was great. He, had, he was a favorite of the kids. Everybody loved the gorilla. And, and in fact, he got very inventive. He had a great act in which he would swing out on a barn rope over the lion's cage. People loved it. Well, they got to Kansas, and they were in this little town, and wouldn't you know, the inevitable happened. He was out over the middle of the lion cage when the rope broke and he fell on the back of the meanest, fiercest lion in the whole circus, who let out a ferocious roar. Forgetting for a moment that he was a gorilla, the man began to shout for help. And then he heard this voice saying, shut up, you fool, or we'll both lose our jobs. <laughs> Dressing up, pretending, not being who you really are. That's what Peter's talking about here. He's saying, don't, don't, don't masquerade as the world like you used to live. Uh, don't live like you did before you trusted in Christ. Now, when people today, some people hear the word holiness, thoughts like old-fashioned, straight-laced, sober-sad come to mind. The word in the New Testament for holy is hagios. Uh, the root meaning is different set apart. Think about this. The Jewish temple was hagios because it was different than ordinary buildings. Uh, the Sabbath was hagios because it was different from other days, ordinary days. The Christian is hagios because he or she is different from ordinary people. So we who have trusted in Christ are hagios. We are different. We are set apart for God's purposes. 
And when the New Testament writers refer to believers as saints, that's the idea that's in mind. The word saint simply means a holy one, a set-apart one. And so that's the way we're to think of ourselves. It speaks of our position in Christ, our identification with him and, and in him. Now in these verses, though, Peter's talking about holiness in relation to conduct, how we live our lives. And he has in mind the ongoing process that theologians call sanctification. Remember these big words, justification, God declares us righteous. It's just an instantaneous act when we come to faith in Christ. He declares you righteous. But sanctification is this ongoing process of becoming righteous. That's called spiritual growth. Uh, Paul makes the same appeal in his writings. For example, in the letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 7, he says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Those who are called to be God's children are called to be like him. And this involves obedience to God's command, um, the willing response to what God has said because of what God has done for us. And so we are God's children. We've been set apart by him for his purposes. And Peter's appeal is that we would act like it. We would live that way. If holiness is so basic to the Christian life, why isn't it experienced by most Christians? Jerry Bridges, um, who was on staff with the ministry called The Navigators, wrote an excellent book. It's titled the, the Pursuit of Holiness. And in it, he suggests that there are three problem areas that we tend to fall into. First of all is that our attitude towards sin is more self-centered than God-centered. In other words, he says we are more concerned about our victory over sin than we are about the fact that our sins grieve the heart of God. And in our success-oriented culture in which we live, so often our concern isn't that sin is offensive to God. We're more upset the fact that we failed in our battle with temptation and sin. And we fail to see that victory is really just a byproduct of obedience. Second, he says we've misunderstood living by faith to mean that no effort at holiness is required on our part. You know, sort of the let go, let God you know, cliche there. We just kind of sit back and, and, and be passive in this. Um, D.A. Carson, a uh, great theologian, but makes a great point. He writes, people, I, do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We, we cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we've been liberated. Great perspective. Um, you know, as God works in our lives, we're able to trust him for the power to obey. And so our minds choose and then they will to do what God says is right. And then he goes a step further. Then he gives us the power 
to follow through on those decisions, and that's where the role of the indwelling spirit comes in. You think about Peter, he believed in Christ. He he wanted to follow him before Pentecost, uh, but it was all in his own effort, and he failed miserably. But after Pentecost, when God gave his spirit, when the Holy Spirit indwelt Peter and empowered Peter, uh, his life truly reflected the character of Christ. It wasn't that he stopped sinning, but it was that his life consistently brought glory to God through his obedience to Christ. Bridges suggests a third problem area, and that's that we don't take some sin seriously. It's easy, isn't it, given our culture today to kind of categorize sins into big ones and little ones, acceptable ones, unacceptable ones. You know, if everyone is doing it, especially other believers, then we think it's okay. And we've fallen into what I think we could call cultural holiness. Uh, All we're doing is comparing ourselves with others. But here's the thing. God's not called you to be like others. He's called you to be like him. And that's the point that Peter makes. Because he's holy, we need to be holy. Well, Peter goes on here now and talks about a life of reverence for God that's based on the cost of redemption. Would you look in the text at verse 17? Uh, Peter writes, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter reminds us, that there will come a day of judgment. Now listen, for those who've trusted in Christ, this is not a judgment for salvation. It's a judgment for rewards or lack of rewards. Our sin, your sin, if you've trusted in Christ, has been judged at the cross. Jesus said this about those who would believe in him from John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, present tense, eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. The judgment on believers is on how they live their lives on this earth, in Christ. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. The word evil probably is not a good translation. It really means good good for nothing. So the deeds that we do in our bodies, whether they're good or good for nothing, that is of no spiritual value, no eternal value. In the parallel passage in the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the outcome of this judgment of believers is for rewards or lack of rewards. This is quite a different judgment than what awaits those who have rejected Christ. 
You know, I think we even Christians, sometimes Christians for years and years and years, and we are fearful about facing God. Yes, there's going to be a judgment, but it's not for salvation. It's not what your eternal destiny is. That's settled the moment that you trust in Christ. But it will be whether you will receive rewards from him in that day. Peter says, be sober-minded. Set your hope on the grace to be revealed. Be holy. And then he adds this. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. I don't think we should shy away from the fact that there is an appropriate fear because of who God is and what he requires of his children. But the term is also filled with meaning about awe and reverence. Maybe the original shock and awe here, you know, when we think of God. But, it, but it, it's a caution and circumspection that seeks to avoid what would offend God or would dishonor God. And Peter tells us why we should conduct ourselves in this way. He says that we were ransomed or redeemed, depending on your translation there, by the precious blood of Christ. The word precious there in the language of the New Testament means costly, expensive, Eternal life has been bought with nothing less than the death of Jesus on our behalf. And so the Christian life is to be lived out with the knowledge of what it cost God for our salvation. Again, Peter's readers would have really understood this living in the Roman Empire, slave. Half the Roman Empire were enslaved. Now it include doctors and lawyers as well as common bond slaves. But people might be sold into slavery by parents. They might put themselves into slavery because of debt. They might be captured in, in war, whatever the reason. But, but, but this picture, and Paul uses the same thing in his letter of Romans, it's the picture of a slave standing on an auction block and being sold to the highest bidder. It was costly to buy a slave. And, and, and they understood that. The readers understood that. And so when, when they pick up this language for us in the New Testament, it's the idea of a person being bought out of the slave market of sin, redeemed, purchased. And God purchases us for himself, but the cost of the purchase is the blood of Jesus. The writer of the book of Hebrews notes, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This is what it cost God to be able to forgive you and me. And Peter says, if you noticed in there, that this plan of redemption predated the creation of the world. You want to put your mind on a mind-blowing you know, experience? Just think about that a little bit. That God planned this out even before he created in omniscience, knowing that this beautiful creation would choose independence from him, and yet he chose to make this plan possible. Purposed within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that Jesus would come and die for lost sinners. Well, Peter adds one more exhortation that comes as a result of or consequence of girding your loins of your mind, and that's this. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Go back to the text, if you would, verse 22. Peter says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass, 
the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. We are to love others, Peter says, because we've been born of seed which is imperishable, the word of God. Kind of a funny thing that he says there. You notice he says, since you love the brethren, now love. Sounds a little strange, doesn't it? Maybe this will help. Peter uses two different words for love in verse 22. The first is phileo, which is a brotherly love. This is, this is an affection or a fondness for another person. It's a human attachment to another. It, it is a love that's based on what you find likable in the other person. So these believers, Peter said, had an affection for one another as fellow saints. You know, they'd gone from sinners to saints, and they've changed their attitudes then towards one another because of that. But the second word that Peter uses in this verse is agapao, which is agape love. It's, it's God's kind of love. It's the same word that's used in 1 John 4, 8. God is agapao, love. Uh, it's the same word used in, in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Uh, it, it carries the idea of self-sacrifice for the benefit of the one loved. Relating it to believers, it's the love that we're to have for another person, uh, the, that kind of love because of his or her value to Christ. The evidences of this kind of love, agape love, are spelled out in 1 Corinthians 13. This is a love that is patient. It's a love that's kind, that's gentle. It's a love that's not jealous. It's not boastful. It doesn't demand its own rights, and on and on. This is the kind of love that we're to have alongside of brotherly or sisterly love. How do we do that? How do we love people that way? You know, the only possible way, I think, is by yielding to the Lordship of Christ and trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit into us. I don't think it comes naturally to love most people in that way. Again, we're so self-centered that it comes from the flaw of being human. Um, you know, we just don't want to respond to other people, particularly people that just maybe rub us the wrong way. I swear there's probably one in your life, if not more. But God calls you not just to relate to them as another person, but to relate to them as he would relate to them in that kind of love. And so we love in return. And we love with the love with which we are loved by God. Now, if we would be this kind of people, if we're to live this way, if this is what helps us to keep on keeping on in difficulties in our life, uh, then we have to do what Peter exhorts us to do. Keep sober in spirit. Set your hope fully on the grace of God. Be holy, that is, choose to live as one who's been set apart as different. Live in reverence and awe of God who will judge our works. And earnestly love one another as God loves. Those have to be commitments that we make as we strive toward holiness. I'm going to go back to my sports analogy from earlier. You know, we're in the football season, so it makes sense to do that. Um, so I want you to think it's the third quarter. Uh, it's been a rough game so far. 
You're playing on the offensive line. Uh, and you're a bit discouraged uh, getting your head beaten in here. And so the coach calls a timeout, and you go to the sideline and sit on the bench, and he points up to the scoreboard, and you look up there, and the final score is already posted, and you are the winner. It cannot be changed. The score is there. It's locked in. It is absolutely guaranteed. Now, you can't stay on the bench. you got to get back in the game and get knocked around. But don't you have a different perspective? Don't you have a different feel about the game at that point? Isn't there a different vibe, a different emotion, a different energy for the game? Aren't you motivated to play as if you're on top? Because in reality, in truth, in the final analysis, you are. Because the final score has already been posted. We need to understand that's what Peter is holding out for his readers. The final score, your ultimate destiny, it's already been declared. So regardless of the trials and the difficulties that you're going through, you need to know you're the winner. It's already been declared. Now you still have to play the game of life. You still have to face. Doesn't make emotionally, doesn't make your circumstances any different. But you should feel a little bit different about them. You should feel a little bit different about what lies ahead because God already posted the score. It's there. That's the hope we have in Christ. Not only does it have the effect of, of, of changing our perspective, playing the game of life, but we then play the game rightly, according to the rules. And so, because of this great hope that is ours, we want to live our lives in a way that it accurately reflects who we are and what we have in Christ. We don't want to masquerade in the world. We want to live authentic lives because of Christ. Well, would you pray with me? Lord, I, I pray that you would take the message of 1 Peter these weeks and help it to really settle into our minds and our hearts and our souls. For some, they're going through difficult times now. Uh, for others, it will come. That's life. But I pray that we would prepare our minds for action. We would prepare our minds uh, by being sober-minded with our hope fixed totally upon you. Would you then give us the courage to face each day as it comes. Help us in this game of life to know that the score's already been posted. And would you then take the reality of that and change the way that we feel day by day. Thank you for the great gift of your son, the great gift of salvation by grace, and uh, we're so grateful for what you've done in our lives and want to do until you take us home to be with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.